James Romig, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I want to first put a little a little context here for folks who are listening that you and I have never met or spoken um, until now, and this, these are sometimes some, sometimes some of my favorite podcasts is just getting to know somebody from scratch, even though that we have a lot of our Venn diagrams in life overlap in many ways. Um, but I wanted to also just thank you for being proactive and reaching out to me about doing this podcast, and it's something that I wish people would do more often. I understand why. I understand why people don't, but um, sometimes I get a little sassy on Facebook and I, I throw out a fishing line just to be like, "Hey, dum dums, I'm willing to talk to anybody." And um, clearly, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but I sometimes like putting fishing lines out there just to see who are the most interesting people that are going to, you know, actually respond. And so I appreciate you doing that. That means a lot to me. And I, I far prefer to talk to people who want to talk um, rather than just me reaching out to blindly. So thank you for that. Um, you are a percussionist who, in composer, who's been in, uh, or you're, you are a percussionist or a composer? I started out as a percussionist. I'm no longer a percussionist as far as I can tell. Um, but are you primarily a composer? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Can you just, before we get into any nuts and bolts on, I know that you have a new guitar solo coming out, which I'd love to chat with you about. Um, sure. But I'm curious, like, can you just take me back to like baby, baby James and like what, where the hell are you from? What got you into doing what you're doing? Why are you like, every, clearly every one of your life choices led to this podcast. So like, can you just tell me, take me back to the beginning life choices and what got you here? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's all been leading up to this. It's all been <laughs> what you like? Isn't that weird? Like sometimes when you're sitting outside of a McDonald's, like on a on a rest stop in the middle of nowhere, you're just like every life choice I've made has led me to this moment. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, my wife and I are fond of saying, "Look where new music has brought us today." <laughs> yeah, sitting at a Target in the middle of nowhere, eating a pretzel, trying to kill two hours before something starts. Yep. Um, you know, and then then we bust that out. Here we are. Yep. Um, I actually started out playing violin and piano and, um, I always loved music when I was a kid, but I didn't really start getting serious about music until percussion, but percussion for me was, was drums. Um, was where, 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 give me give, geographically, where were you? Midwestern United States. Uh, I was born in California, but we, uh-huh. Soon moved to Madison, Wisconsin, and then lived um, in the Chicago suburbs, and then moved to Dubuque, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my senior year of high school, my family moved to Des Moines. Mm-hmm. I moved to Des Moines, too, for, for one year, then went off to college at the University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. So somewhere before the University of Iowa, um, I was playing drums, playing drum set in my high school rock band, and then also studying percussion and playing in orchestra and band mm-hmm. and whatever. And that's where all the music stuff started to make sense uh, somehow. And I, I really took off devouring methods books and, you know, find, that, that moment when you finally start to click as a musician. And, mm-hmm. um, I went to the University of Iowa thinking that I was going to be probably a concert percussionist of some sort, playing an orchestra. And I wanted to tell you about this. I was thinking about things we could talk about. Mm-hmm. One of the first things I remember about Iowa was before I was a student there, it was during some band thing in high school i went into a room which later turned out to be the center for new music practice room uh steve schick's former office Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. before i knew who steve schick was and a graduate student there um had safa set up Mm -hmm. and he played for the the high school percussionists 
And I remember thinking it was the coolest thing I had ever seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The score to the music to everything. And I remember going home and I had a score to the King of Denmark. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that it was cool to go into the, the basements of music stores and paw through their file cabinets full of music and, mm-hmm. and buy stuff. So I had this score and I don't, I don't know where I picked it up, but I remember photocopying it, cutting it apart, gluing it to a poster board so I could have something that looked a little bit like Safa mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in my, in my practice. Student. I, I didn't really know what to do with it. I'm sure I read the instructions, but um, just the physical act of gluing stuff to cardboard seemed mm-hmm. very cool to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, I think every percussionist has a copy of King of Denmark and they've done that, that, that very thing. I did the same thing. I, yeah. actually, I even went so far as to set the whole piece up. Yeah. And then I, then I was like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then I never did anything with it after that. You know, it was like, the I, act of... I, set it up. I, think I just wanted to have some graph paper with stuff in it on poster board, like this super hip guy that mm-hmm. I saw at the university of Iowa. And, uh, so when I got there and started studying music and studying percussion, this was with Tom Davis. I don't know if you know that name. Mm-hmm. He was Steve Schick's teacher, Thomas L Davis. Okay. Uh, there's some, some of that classic percussion literature. Um, I don't know how different we are in ages. I'm 50. So 40, when, 42. Okay. Yeah. So when I was starting out as a percussionist, there wasn't nearly as much stuff, obviously, as there is now, but probably not even as much stuff as there was when you were starting Yeah, I mean, college. there was, I mean, I don't know exactly where the, like, when the switch was flipped in terms yeah. of available repertoire. When I was in college, I, I went to school in 1998 and graduated in 2003. Okay. Fall, to, fall 2003, I think. Yeah, so I guess you were um, nine years ahead, behind. Yeah, there was a good amount. There was enough solo repertoire where you didn't have to play Bach if you didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, a, like, Zanakis was enough. There were enough publications and stuff that had yep. started to get, <clears throat> stuff had gotten around. Um, but it was all, there wasn't a lot of new stuff. Like it was all stuff that like Schick had played and then, mm-hmm. or, you know, Zicklus and yeah. Safa and Rabans and all, all these different pieces. It was still relatively limited. And now like, there's just been an exponential explosion of yeah. new, new works uh, for percussion and, and the landscape is just completely. I mean, I, I actually, whether this is appropriate or not, I credit YouTube for almost or at least being the major catalyst for the dissemination of new works. And yeah. I mean, that just wasn't available. And I, I mean, if, if I wanted to buy something, I had to go to the Steve Weiss catalog. Right. And I just, I would just like go down, which ones had the highest grade level and then what had the, cool, the coolest names, you know, yeah. and then what can I afford to buy? And I would just buy like 12 scores and be like, yeah. and I literally would crack them open and learn about the composer then. Exactly. You know? I have a memory of buying uh, child of tree. Mm-hmm. And being tremendously disappointed when it arrived. I mean, I think it's cool now, but right, right. Um, you know, those four pages with the the blue, red, and green ink that you can't read. Yeah, not very well photocopied. And it was probably seventeen dollars or something, which was a lot at the time. I mean, that was a pair of timpani mallets, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it came to the mouth. I can't use this. I mean, I can't put it in my recital. Um, I could frame it, and, and by that cool, time, but... I was realizing that. Um, as cool as all the percussion stuff was that this orchestra thing wasn't going to happen because I wasn't 
happy spending two hours in a practice room working on my triangle technique. Well, this is something that, uh, in terms of the culture of like uh, collegiate pedagogy, in in I would say maybe just in general with music, but specifically with percussion. In my generation, you went to teach mm-hmm. at a college, so your path was to get the doctorate, or you were taking orchestra auditions. Mm-hmm. The other path, well, there were two other ones. One was freelancing, which mm-hmm. kind of had a lower, just a slightly less respectable sort of path if you were, in terms of your reputation and like like how you were seen. And then the other one was being a band director. That was like almost the bottom of the barrel was like, oh, well, you can't do anything else. Go be a band director. And all of that to me as a student just felt so limiting and terrifying to be like, well, if I can't do orchestra, like what else am I going to do? You know? Right. And I was fortunate. My father, excuse me, is in education. And at the time I was in school, he was the Dean of the school of education at Drake university. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to him about this idea of everybody saying I should get a music ed degree as a fallback. And he said, that's not a fallback. He said, you don't want to be a junior high band director as a fallback. He said, you're not going to make a lot of money. It's going to be a lot of work. And if that's not your first love, that's not what you should be doing. And I remember thinking that was really wise advice. Well, it's also not fair. It's not fair to you, but it's also not fair to the students either to have their teacher, like the person teaching you music is only there because they fell back on it. You know, like that's, that's just a default position to put your students in too, you know? Yeah. And if I was going to fall back on something, I'd rather fall back on being a rock star or being a professional tennis player or something, <laughs> you know, something yeah. a little more glamorous. Um, not that I don't completely admire people who are in the in the education system yeah, uh, yeah. doing that but, thing. But yeah. I've got students now, and that's their passion, and that's fantastic. But if it's not, it's probably not wise to advise people to go into that. Or... I mean, I, this is maybe controversial. It's is it wise to advise people to go into orchestra auditions as a life? I mean, it's like you may you, you may be more likely to be a professional tennis player than to be <laughs> you know, the snare drummer with the Cleveland Orchestra. Yeah, a few years ago, a friend of ours was playing principal flute with the Chicago Symphony with Muti conducting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was Mahler Four. It was Mahler Four, and uh, he was just subbing. But obviously, that's some pretty high level subbing. And my wife and I drove over to Chicago to see it. Cause when your friend's playing principal in Chicago, you go. And we were talking to ourselves, the number of people who've played principal flute in the Chicago symphony over the last, I don't know, 10 years, there's gotta be a smaller number than people who have started NFL games at quarterback. I, that's an interesting analogy. Like I'm just, I'm trying to crunch the numbers but, in my head. Think like, about the, the people in the flute jobs will yeah. stay for, 30, 40, 50 years. Right, right, right. Yeah, Tom Brady is... Quarterbacks the, are turning over. Yeah, Tom yeah. Brady is the, the exception. Right, but he's like the, all, the the Hall of Famer, and he's been playing for how long? Yeah, I don't know. Like 15 years? Yeah, yeah. I Maybe mean, like... 10? I don't know. He's not even out of his probation phase with the Cleveland yeah. Orchestra yet, you know? Like, right, right. <laughs> or whatever. I'm just I'm right. sort of talking on my yeah. ass, but... So he's going to be playing trumpet in the Boston Symphony before we know it. <laughs> and then he'll keep that job for another 30 years, and nobody will be able to get it. But yeah, the, the odds are crazy. And mm-hmm. so I grew up before so percussion mm-hmm. as a as an inspiration of some other thing you could do. Kronos uh, was around mm-hmm. when I was in school. And I saw Kronos a lot because they did a lot at the University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. But that was well before Jack. 
So Nexus, Nexus was one of the groups that I know so looked yeah. up to a lot. Um, Nexus, Cremata, uh, Amadinda, but, but right. in terms of the U, I mean, but Nexus is Canadian, even though some of the guys are American. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they Nexus, also seemed old when I was in school. They probably weren't, but they seemed really established. Yeah, they were they were fifty, James. I think whenever they were in school, whatever we were in school, they were in their fifties, and so okay, like the idea so, that, so it didn't feel like something we could do, right? But the idea also like you're fifty. The idea that like we we were in school being like they are ancient. They're like yeah, the ancient yeah. Greeks, you know, statues. Yeah. You know, like I'm know, not thinking were, that were, so much. Were, I'm just thinking that um, it didn't feel like something that my friends and I could do. Well, it wasn't. They were already established. Well, and and just calling balls and strikes too. They weren't a full time percussion group. They all played in orchestras. They all had yeah. you know careers outside Nexus, and they they'll look you in the eye and say that was a conscious decision not to be a full time group because like that was one of the first pieces of advice they gave. So it was like whatever you do, don't make mm-hmm. it a full time group. And like, we're like, okay, you know what we're gonna do? Full time, <laughs> bitches. That's what we're doing. <laughs> you know, and and they look at us like we're crazy, but yeah, but it was. Um, you're not told, you're just told like, Oh, Nexus. And it's like, Oh, cool. I want to do what they're doing. It's like, well, you're not told that they also all are gigging on the side. They're doing a million things outside of that. Um, you're right. Kronos might be, was one of the first and only real groups like that, that was touring the state, touring the world Mm -hmm. as a contemporary string. They weren't playing Bach. They weren't playing the, 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 the string quartets of Haydn. They were playing Jimi Hendrix, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and, uh, you know, John, you know, uh, George Crumb and like Steve Reich and all these other different composers. Um, so in terms of small chamber groups, I mean, I didn't even know of Kronos when I was in school. I didn't know if, I'm just going to be honest. I didn't know who Kronos was until I got through almost my second year at Yale. Mm. No idea who they were. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have, if they weren't playing there all the time. And you know what school is like, I mean, you learn from the professors, but they're also the, the older students. Mm-hmm. So there was a real ethos at Iowa at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, certainly emanating down from Schick, who was, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ahead of me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that was, he was still talked about. And mm-hmm. that was, it was still, um, still riding that wave, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was a really, really good place to be. But I, I'm sure that with all the new music stuff, I have a I have a recollection of going home at the first break, you know, Christmas after my first semester and explaining to my parents, Beethoven and Mozart, they're fine, but they don't use nearly as many polyrhythms as Zanakis and uh, you know, their harmonies aren't as crunchy as Verez and they're not as good, you know. So there's you still have the dumb opinions, but I had new dumb opinions when I went mm-hmm. to school mm-hmm. and it was all new music based. So being um uh the the being in so percussion and this sort of leads me to the segue of, uh, to you as a composer, like one of the things that I've tracked over time, just uh, if I were to be Monday morning quarterback on my college education yeah, is the, um, the prevalence or at least the awareness of living composers around us doing stuff. Um, and, and that being something you should actively be involved in. One of the problems with school sometimes is that it is an institution. It becomes a test tube that becomes very safe and conservative. Commissioning new works is not a conservative act. That is a, you are birthing something out of nothing. And like, you can't be, you have to be crazy and sort of get in there and till the soil and not, you have to be experimental in some degree. Um, and I'm curious, um, for you as a composer, how have you tracked that sort of culture of 
performer? Because when you talk, we sort of, you, you just joked about Beethoven or Bach. It's like, you know, one of my professors at Yale, I said something, I was like, oh, Bach is kind of boring. And she, she basically grabbed me by the neck and was like, pulled me real close. <laughs> and she's like, he had 26 children. <laughs> and I was like, what? She's like, he was no prude. And you write a new mass every Sunday with 26 kids screaming yeah. for food. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. He's a person who was just as crazy. And she's like, do you know what it smelled like at box church? And I'm like, no. Like, like he might have been drinking the whole time because wouldn't you with 26 kids? And I was like, stop with all of this context and nuance. You know, like I, I couldn't deal with it. Right. But then you, you learn about, you know, George Crumb seems like – you know, somebody similar to Bach, if you don't know who George Crumb is, but George Crumb was in the room with Kronos working on stuff, trying things. Steve Reich, the same, like he's in textbooks now. When you actually sit down and look at the nuance, he was in a room with Russ Hartenberger and Bob Becker being like, I don't know. Can you guys try this? Mm -hmm. That doesn't work. Let's try this. Don't ever tell anybody we did this because that sucked. That was a stupid idea. Let's do this. You know, like, and so for you, how have you tracked or am I tracking something that does, that shouldn't be tracked? Am I misdiagnosing something? But I feel like there's a lot more acceptance of composers in the educational institution at the student level now than there used to be. Um, and I'm curious if that had if there's if that was any of the impetus for you going into composing as much as you've gone into. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I think that when I was in school, maybe when we were in school, I knew there were composers all around us, but they were all graduate students mm. at University of Iowa. So there were the famous composers. Mm-hmm. John Cage was still alive for a couple of years of school when I was there. Mm. Um, the famous guys who were published, who were in the Steve Weiss catalog. And then the people that I could go to Taco Bell with. And I didn't think there was that much of a middle ground. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, I think we all think this at some point in our careers, the young stages of our careers, that, at some point you just make it you're a nobody you're a nobody and then you're in the textbooks mm-hmm. and now i think there's probably a better acknowledgement of the middle ground because of facebook and because of the concert honesty podcast we get to know one another mm-hmm. in different ways mm-hmm. you don't have to be uh, so doesn't have to be on the cover of time magazine for me to know about so. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. But I think when we were in school, um, it was different. But for me, I just found that um, composing for percussion is something that we did. We had six percussion ensemble concerts a year, three wow. a semester. Wow. And there's only so much. Right. You, know, <laughs> you, you burn through all of the rep in like one semester. Good Lord. Well, in a way, yeah. yeah. And it was cool because, you know, third construction came every eight semesters or every three semesters, you know, however, in, in a rotation, but there was always room to do other stuff, including each uh, end of semester concert. uh, They called it the last chance percussion ensemble concert. It was your last chance to perform publicly to get out of doing a jury. Mm. So these concerts would go for two or two and a half hours while people were playing solos and duos and things, just trying not to do a jury. (laughs) But in a public setting. That's a good incentive, though. I like that, that model. It was cool. And looking back on it, it makes total sense for the professor who didn't want to sit around and do juries. Right, which also is not really giving someone a, an experience of getting an at-bat of something in front of an audience. I mean, yeah. Like yeah. There, it's a real, I mean, it sort of is. It's an audience. But like 
actually getting on a concert stage is way more valuable in my experience. Um, so I started writing little pieces for my colleagues Mm -hmm. and we'd perform them and that was satisfying. And I found that I enjoyed that more than worrying about my thumb rolls and Whatever. What was it? What was it, what was more enjoyable about it? I mean, because both both require a skill set that you get better at that you are maybe currently not as good at, which breeds insecurity, right? Like, so, like, why were you willing to deal with the, the compositional insecurity, but not the thumb roll insecurity? Good question, because I was totally insecure about composition, just like we are about everything. Um, I think maybe it was the the social aspect of music making. Hmm. Um, that scared you or that you liked? No, I think I liked it. I, I liked it. I liked rehearsals. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I liked interacting with people where we're conversing and joking around in between doing something productive. Mm-hmm. Maybe just going out for lunch seemed a little more intimidating to young me than interacting and getting to know people with some sort of common goal in mind. Mm. You know, we've got a two hour rehearsal. We're going to be screwing around for half of it. And that's a lot of fun, but having something to tie us into some sort of a project or trajectory seemed important to me. I've never really thought about this before. I'm just sort of setting it for you, but does that make any sense? Absolutely. I mean, I I just did a podcast with um, a guy named Brian Grazer and we were talking about, he was just giving me some of his background and he mentioned that he, he uh, was diagnosed with Tourette's when he was young Mm -hmm. and for him, it was it manifested itself in some physical tics, like clearing his throat and yeah. moving, moving his arm a certain way. Um, but he's like, you know, but playing percussion, that all went away. Again, mm. Not to say that playing percussion is like going to, you know, solve cancer or anything like that. But like, right. I'm, I'm having these thoughts of like, you know, there are people for whom public speaking is terrifying because they have a slight lisp or they have a stutter. But singing absolutely is a different pathway in their brain. And like, so the idea that in one social context, going out to lunch might be terrifying for you. But if, if that lunch is coupled with the workshopping of one of your new pieces, oddly that social anxiety goes away. It's like, why, 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 what does that have to do with? Yeah. Why? I I got, you know, I don't have a good question. I don't even, not not even looking for an answer, but like, what is going on here? You know? Yeah, I think we're all just looking for contexts when we can feel like we're ourselves. Um, so musically, you know, we love music and then we all find our, our outlets for it. So for me, the composing seemed like fun. And uh, I felt like I could really throw myself into it the same way I could throw myself into practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I liked the, the preparation in advance too, because mm-hmm. especially these days, you know, uh, once I'm finished with the piece... And I pass it off to these good performers. I have the good fortune to work with. You know, they, I've conversed with them while I'm working on it, gotten some input here and there when I ask for it. And then they can ask me if they feel like it while they're working on it. But I don't need to, I don't need to be involved in the same way after that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe it's just being able to pre-plan things. Well, how has that, so that, how has that process for you I don't want to say matured over time, but like, how has that maybe patinaed for you over time? Like, like, have you kept that same exact approach? Do you feel that same way now? Like there are things post pandemic that pre pandemic I enjoyed. And now I'm just like, nah, like, like, and I'm shocked at how quickly my mind changed on that. Yeah. Um, for example, what? 
it's it's really hard to explain. Um, I I kind of had this feeling a little bit pre-pandemic, but it during the pandemic it really set it set in for me. Um, I've I've always after sh- on stage, I am yours. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will hug you. I'll kiss you. I'll say things that are inappropriate. Like whatever needs to happen in that safe space, mm-hmm. I am all in. Um, as soon as the timer is done and the show is done, leave me alone. I've just given you everything I have. Mm-hmm. And that feels so – like I, I felt guilty about that for a long time. Like where I'd go – I you know, I'd go to – we want you to sign CDs after the show. I hate it. Yeah. Not because I don't like people and that I don't like somebody giving me a compliment or anything like that. I just had this weird, like, I don't know why. I just felt two years gone by, we didn't play a lot of shows. Yeah. Now that we're getting back into it, I still have that feeling after shows and I don't feel bad about it anymore. Yeah. That's just who I am. That is the way I'm going to be the best for you on stage is to allow me to come on and just tear my chest open and show you how everything works or doesn't. But when I'm yeah. done, do not ask me to open it back up again until we've, we've, we've agreed on this social contract and then I'll do it again. And I, I, again, I don't know why I just now don't care anymore. I don't feel bad about it. And yeah. that's a weird thing now in two, in two years, I now no longer feel guilty about that. That one thing that was sort of bothering me. I felt like as a musician, I should be this gregarious, like, I want to, I want to hang out in the green room with everybody all the time. It's like, no, I want to be by myself. I just did the most social thing and extroverted thing you could possibly ask me to do. Now get the fuck out of my green room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I don't, I don't know if that's healthy or all or what, but it is definitely something now that I've, I've, I've become a firm believer in. Yeah, well, it'll be and, interesting to see if it changes over yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's why the last few years, or if it's uh, something that's always been there that you now just feel comfortable with. Yeah, and that's why I asked of, of you, like, is there anything that you were sure of as, you know, a young person or unsure of that now, like, you're like, oh, yeah, this is, this is a rule for me now? Hmm, that's a great question. I think the... The biggest rule, and maybe this is close to what you're talking about, is I don't want to spend any time on something that um, something that isn't personally satisfying when you take away money or fame and fortune or whatever. I mean, once in my field, once you get tenure, once you get promoted to full professor, whatever the the check boxes go away mm-hmm. and I've got colleagues, my age friends who I've known for a long time who in various ways are frustrated by the situation that they're in now where they say, okay, now what, mm-hmm. you know, they're happy that they've gotten to where they've gotten, mm-hmm. but now they're not sure what to do next. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, I, I'm thinking about that. I guess it's just middle age stuff. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but where do you want to be spending your time? And you're saying you're happy to spend your time on stage. You're not happy to spend your time off stage. Mm-hmm. In some ways, maybe I'm the opposite because I've been finding that if I can go have lunch with a composer who I met at a seminar or something who wants to talk more about something I'm doing, I feel like that's a valuable use of my mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. 
maybe not trying to trade it in for the next project or the next commission or something, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you're in so percussion and your audience, now I'm going to make you feel bad for what you just told me about how you feel, but I feel bad about a lot of stuff. This is, this is only just throw it on the pile. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but if somebody is, uh, is genuinely interested, then I feel like I can find time for that person. Mm-hmm. And it's important maybe for that person to see that I can make time for them. Mm-hmm. And that sounds hopelessly corny, I guess. No, I, I, I don't disagree with that sentiment. Um, and I, I do feel a little bit bad. <laughs> That's it's fine. Um, it, but it, yeah, it's a weird, it's a, but I think we're, where we are agreeing here is there is a, I'm, the older I get, the more I'm trying to exert more control over the my sacred spaces. Yeah, like for me, this podcast is one. I think sometimes when people are like, "Wow, that's weird that you don't want to just go hang out and talk with people all the time after a show, or you don't want to be super social or go to this donor event or whatever," like you do a podcast, you talk to people all the time. It's like, yeah, but this is my church. Like I built this church, and so we're not in my church right now. Like I want to be at my altar because that's where my communion is. Like I, my, my wife's a Lutheran pastor. So that's why I'm making all these church analogies. Gotcha. But like there's a, it's a very sacred place I've carved out for myself that the older I get, the more I value. And so like my return in the concert stage for me is one of those places. Um, and I think I'm like, I don't know if I'm becoming more protective of it. Like where I like, so if I do see somebody, that really genuinely is curious. I'm not just going to like turn my back on them and walk away. Right. But I, what I hope someone who listens to this might take away is I hope they know how much work that actually is for me to muster the strength to do that. Yeah. That's work for me. Yeah. That's not a sacred place. That is me re explaining to you. It's like going to church and then having the pastor come back and reread you the entire sermon again and explain to you all the details of why she said what she said. Mm. Like maybe you didn't get it all. That's fine. That's fine. Like you, you, maybe you'll get it in a year. That's okay. Yeah. I don't even get it all. That's why I'm up here doing it. Cause I don't understand it all. Yeah. The, all yeah. time. So but I've just given it to you the best way I know how. Yeah. And sometimes that guilt that's, I have a little bit of guilt there and I'm wondering like as a composer, I imagine I, I've written a few things, but don't you as a composer kind of have to like you don't you have to draw boundaries around what you do when you're interacting with performers sometimes because collaboration's great mm-hmm. it's awesome to be in the room and be like I have this idea and somebody else has an idea but then sometimes you love your idea and you don't love the other person's idea <laughs> and you have to figure out a way to be like nope now we're in my church yeah. uh, you can build your church however you'd like but you've commissioned me to build you a church how do you given everything we just said about how awesome it is to work with other people. Yeah. How do you draw those boundaries? Cause at some point your name's on the score. It's not your collaborators. They're not the ones who are getting blamed if the piece doesn't succeed, you know? So how do you, how do you tackle that? Um, in my experience, I'm, I'm not getting a lot of calls from people and organizations that I don't know mm. or don't know of, uh, you know, we, we just met, but if, if so calls tomorrow, I have some idea what you do. You have some idea what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not important enough that somebody's going to just want my name on a program and call and ask for something. So generally 
the performers I work with have some idea of, of what it is that I'm interested in doing. Mm-hmm. And I have some idea of what they do well and what they're interested in doing. We'll have conversations about general trajectories. Mm-hmm. And then I really go off by myself. And sometimes I feel guilty about this. And maybe you can tell me how things work with so, and it's probably different with every composer. But I've got colleagues and, and friends, both on the composer side and the performer side, who will talk about yeah, I just spent the weekend with so-and-so and we played 8 million flower pots and tried 14 different settings on the reverb unit and seven different ways of notating it. And I don't feel like I do that as much as I'm supposed to in the 21st century. Really getting that involved. And I admire that and it just sounds really romantic and fantastic to me. But when I try to do it, I spend a few hours talking about saxophone multiphonics and yeah. But but so I, I I love I love that you're expressing this, and so please, I'm not I'm laughing with you, not at you at all. Of but like like but like romance is like you know somebody could look at Brad Pitt and be like, wow, it'd be romantic to be with him. Until you realize he farts in his sleep, and then you're like, oh, he's a person too. You know, like, yeah. like I think every like collaborate again, collaboration. Like, it, in in terms of so percussions world, where there are composers that do interact with us on a level similar to what you're describing, but it has come after a lot of trust building. Like Steve Mackey is somebody in that world for us. Uh-huh. Um, where initially there was a lot of like, we had barbecue with him, and he wanted to sit down and be like, I played steel drums with him for a long time, where I would just play. Mm-hmm. shit I liked. And he'd be like, keep playing, whatever you like, just keep playing. I'd play traditional clipsos. And and he was just list, trying to download me as a player into mm-hmm. his sort of like filter. And then he went away and was just like, and pushed out all of the stuff that he pushes out in his own voice, separate from me, you know? And, but then there's other composers like Caroline Shaw for whom she'll come into the room with just a set of chords and be like, here's a chord sequence. Mm-hmm let's record like the, the track called let the soil on this album that we did uh, with her recently. It's mm-hmm. just a steel drum and voice duet. We gave ourselves one hour to, to write it and record it. And so she's like, okay, here's some chords. We went in, I improvised for 20 minutes. She messed around with some lyrics. And then we took two takes, took the first one unedited. That's on the mm-hmm. album. That's the piece. Wow. So like there's very little, like who has ownership there? who gets to, who has the credit on whatever, you know, like, so within, so I think it's all over the spectrum in terms of how that, that happens. And I appreciate you voicing that you have guilt on that stuff, but I think that's actually very common and, uh, and way more. And again, like just whatever you're, tr- I mean, Steve Reich is, I mean, he used to be very collaborative, but he, he doesn't get in the room and hang out and spend hours sampling flower pots. Like he knows what a vibraphone sounds like now. And so yeah. if you, if you, he's yeah. not going to, we, you have a great relationship with him or so does whatever, but like there's not going to be the same back and forth there would be with somebody like Dan Truman or Shara Nova or somebody else that we would work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you're describing sounds very typical actually, and not yeah. like you're some weird hermit in a, in a cave, you know, <laughs> like waiting for divine inspiration. Right. Um, but well, I mean, how for, for you, can you, can you tell me one of the things as a composer that I'm always struck by is when, especially composers who have been doing it for a hot second when they're willing to like, when they say, talk about pieces that of their own that they hate 
Um, is there anything of your like output before we get into the new thing that hopefully I think you love the, your guitar, the <laughs> new guitar piece. I'd love for you to chat about that, but like, is there anything, it, this is also called concert honesty. So like what, what's your weakest piece and why do you think it is? Um, I couldn't say a specific one. There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean I'm not, I wasn't a loaded question, James. I just, I, I'm genuinely curious. Um, the, the ones that don't speak to me as much as they should are the ones that were done too quickly. Hmm. And I had a residency problem 15, 20 years ago when I started doing residencies. I, um, my wife and I don't have any kids. We don't have any pets. We don't have any plants. So we've got time to, to do our work. And, you know, work might be a couple hours a day and long walks in the woods and a lot of time spent cooking. Yeah. So when I'd go to residencies and I'd have uninterrupted spans of time, I'd feel like I had to do more than I would ordinarily do. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't the downtime. And it took me a while to realize that the the walks in the woods and the the time spent making soups and bread and stuff um, was all composition time. Mm. And that if I have a week where somebody else is doing all the cooking and the laundry and I have no other obligations, I don't need to go to class. It doesn't mean that I should be composing 12 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Um, I need that gestation time. So I think things that went too fast were the problems. And I suppose that earlier in my career, the other problem sort of piece would be if so had called 10 years ago or 15 years ago and asked for a a, a new quartet, Mm -hmm. I think I would have done some sort of a test drive Mm. with so, you know, how fast can it go? How fast can I go around this corner? How loud can I make the stereo? I better stop fast, you know, mm. test everything out um, and take advantage of to keep the metaphor going longer than I should the, the fancy new car mm-hmm. that's available um, where the, the piece itself doesn't develop as quickly as the techniques and the, the, all the stuff I've wanted to try. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the pieces that, that don't go very well. So you're saying, uh, just so I understand correctly, the yeah. the idea that a piece, like writing a piece for the new fancy car is a good or a bad thing? Well, for me, it's a bad thing because okay. yeah. um, it, for somebody else, it might be perfectly good. But you're asking about pieces of mine that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I don't feel have survived as well. <clears throat> it's the ones where either I went too fast mm. or I was trying to write a piece that was the idea what I thought what I thought the commissioner wanted from me to do or for them to do so you know a piece for Jack let's have it be just ridiculously difficult let's have everything be crazy harmonics and Mm -hmm. do all the things that an ordinary string quartet wouldn't do and I'm sure that if if you ask them at the right time and in the right situation they might tell you that they've gotten pieces like that mm-hmm. where it's just a, let's open the orchestration book and, and go. But rather, rather the other approach, which is like, I'm a composer who's really curious in hearing a perfect interval tuned. Hmm. You could sit with the Jack quartet all for a year and write a piece on tuning a major fourth. Yeah. 
you know, because those motherfuckers could get that shit crystalline, you know, like, so rather than tuning all the weird harmonics and all right. micro tunings and stuff, like, why don't you just work on a C major chord with them? That might actually yield some pretty <laughs> wild results if you think about it, you know. This is something I was thinking about before we chatted. I was thinking about so, and I was wondering, and, and maybe you wouldn't want to say anything about this or not, but I was wondering how many composers you've worked with who've written you more than one piece. Because I would imagine that average composer that doesn't exist, just this you know, computer-generated version of you know, the, the average composer, mm-hmm. the second so piece would be the one I would want to hear. The first one might be that test drive, mm. which isn't a very interesting drive aside from getting to know the car, but it's the second one. Now that I know what it can do, where do I want to go with mm. it? That's a really interesting question, and I have a million reactions that I'm trying to figure out which one is the most rational one, <laughs> which one is the most appropriate. Um, I think the the collaborations and pieces that we've had that have been the most successful uh, in terms of their idiomaticness to our specific skill sets as four percussionists who do a, a set of things really well compared to like say third coast, which they're four different guys that have different skill sets, you know, like in terms of this particular car, um, a piece like threads by Paul Lansky yeah. is a piece that for some reason just was the right time, the right moment. and has now been played 50, 60 times. And like everybody, every college percussionist knows what, threads is right the second piece that he did with us called springs also awesome i wouldn't say had the same sort of effect or and i don't know why mm-hmm. maybe it was something that we asked like we asked paul to write for a setup that was sort of loosely based on the third construction setup and so springs is basically that instrumentation give or take mm-hmm. maybe that limitation was dumb for us to do with Paul. Maybe that actually hamstrung him a bit. I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. the piece isn't bad at all, but, but look at like, um, uh, Steve Mackey. The first piece he wrote for us was called it is time, which is absolutely like writing for the Ferrari to take fast turns and do the things that it's supposed to. It's like a, yeah, it's, it's a car built for specific things. And he really exaggerated those things to the nth degree with the subsequent pieces that he's written for us, um, we just did a piece called Afterlife with the singer Alicia Olatuja. We did another piece uh, called Before It Is Time, uh, another piece called Madrigals, another one called Blue Notes and Other Clashes that use similar aspects of It Is Time, but it's like he took the things that worked the best out of that one and then built a new car out of that. Mm-hmm. And so now this car that, like, now I'm not, now I'm driving one of those cars, you know, that scene in Ocean's 11 or whatever, where they get all those tiny little cars and take all of the unnecessary metal out of them so they become as light as possible. Because um, they were they were robbing a bank, and so they needed the cars to be as light as possible so they could okay. get as much gold in this car, whatever. It's a dumb analogy. Yeah. But, like, they, they spent the whole scene just taking all the unnecessary parts out of the car so it could still run mm-hmm. and be lighter. And that's kind of what Steve did, was, like, he kept peeling away the shit that doesn't work yeah. to get to this other thing. Caroline Shaw, Taxidermy was the first piece she wrote for us, was definitely not 
a set of strengths that like she asks us to go blink, blink on these little tiny flower pots and speak bits of broken text, you know, like mm-hmm. not hard, very easy for us to do. But she wasn't interested in like making us go like hock it really fast or phase or do anything like that. And that collaboration has now turned into this weird band that she asks us to do really hard things, but is still kind of always being like, what do you guys do when no one's around? And I'm like, Oh, I play steel drums. Well, let's do a steel drum and voice duet. Like why, why would we just sit and hawk it really fast shit when we could do this thing? And so I don't know if I'm answering your question here, but it's kind of all over the map. I mean, like there are Dan Truman is another really good example. Neither Anvil nor Poli was written for us about 15 years ago. I think 14 years ago, absolutely bonkers writing specifically for the four of us to do things that only the four of us can do. Mm-hmm. He then took that and wrote a piece called songs that are hard to sing with the Jack quartet. That is absolutely bonkers and keeps pushing us down that road. So basically now he's taking this car and he just keeps adding shit to it to make yeah. the car even crazier. Like rather than taking things out, he's adding things in. And so, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your question here, but I, I don't think there's been any true like, man, that was an awesome piece. And the second one is just a dud. And yeah. there's not been any that have been vice versa where the, huh. the, the first piece is a real dud, but the second piece is where, really where we hit our stride. Like yeah. we, we joke and so that often our, our MO is to work with composers on the commission before they win a Pulitzer. Ah. So if you work with us, you're guaranteed that your next commission is going to win you a Pulitzer, not the one that's with us. great. <laughs> David Lang, Caroline Shaw, Steve, like everybody that we worked with ends up winning a Pulitzer after they worked with us. So, um, Hopefully your podcast works the same way. <laughs> Sadly, James, I don't think that's true. Um, well, let me let me ask you just to, in the interest of time here. I don't want to. I've already robbed you of forty eight minutes of your life here. Oh, um, not at all. So, what you're, you're working on a new guitar piece right now? Um, can you tell me a little bit about that commission and sort of like what what prompted that and 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 what else are you working on right now? Other than that, yeah, um, the new guitar piece is finished. It's coming out on. June 24th on New World. Mm-hmm. New World released um, Still, my piano piece from a few years ago. Um, so this is the second time I've worked with them. Mm-hmm. This is a, a pandemic thing that actually started before the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, six, seven years ago, I heard about this doom metal band called Yob. Yob. Y-O-B. Okay. Right. Y-O-B. Check it out. I will. Um, I heard about them somewhere, you know, the New York Times or the New Yorker. Um, it was a New York Times article. I think the headline or subheadline might have been, is this the best band in North America? You know, that raises <laughs> eyebrows right there. Yeah. that's. But um, I don't know if you're familiar with the genre. But- Va- very, 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 very vaguely. I, only, I know Sun O. Is that even a, yeah, is that even sure. a doom metal band? I don't even know. Like- <laughs> I don't know what they are. That's, and that's a huge compliment, right? Um <laughs> But that that's, you know, that drony kind of stuff. Yeah. Yob has the same, similar timbres, but I think there's a little more blues influence. It mm. definitely comes more out of, you can, you can hear the lineage, the Black Sabbath and, mm. and whatever. Um, but what appealed to me were 18-minute tunes, 24-minute tunes mm-hmm. that evolve slowly mm. in this minimal kind of way. So I was I was on the road. I had done a 
Friday afternoon comp seminar at Bowling Green. And I was on my way to a Sunday afternoon orchestra performance of one of my pieces in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. So I was in Cleveland on a Saturday night with nothing to do. And I saw that Yob was playing not far from where I was staying. So I went and saw this concert and it was a rainy night. It was a really rainy night. And I'm sure that kept the audience down, but there were, I don't know, hundred, couple hundred people packed into this place and everybody was tuned in to this really bizarre music. Mm-hmm. And I mean, bizarre in a good way, but these long, slow unfolding things with huge payoff, you know, at 18 minutes, it's, it's what, you know, mm-hmm. it's what we do every day. The mm-hmm. stuff that we, you know, the, the kind of things that we're interested in this, this minimalism, um, but the audience reminded me of an audience at one of our shows. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say one of our shows. Your shows get lots of people and whatever, but. Uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> the music concerts. The people enough, there yeah. knew what they were getting into. Right. They right. were really into it. Mm-hmm. And um, the demeanor of the, the folks on stage was, was similar also. It was clear that it was a, it was a community. Mm. So next day I was, I was really struck by this and I, you know, I had an experience and that happens a lot when you go to things by yourself, mm. you, know, you realize what you really think of it. Mm-hmm. So the, I did a little more research and the singer guitarist, Mike Scheidt, he has been Yob for 20 years with a um, slowly rotating cast of uh, people around him. Mm-hmm. He's been the constant with the band. He writes the music. Mm-hmm. He sings it. He was on Facebook. So I sent him a note and I just said, dude, I went to your show last night. It was incredible. I was really struck by the audience. It reminded me of the audience that comes to hear stuff that I do. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to tell you, I thought it was cool that you've got a fan on the other side of the musical universe or something corny like that. Mm -hmm. He wrote back Mm -hmm. and he wrote back the way you or I might write back. I mean, just, you could sense that he was part of the family. Mm-hmm. And so we got to writing back and forth. We became pen pals. I asked him some things about his compositions. He'd write back and say, it sounds like, you know, a lot more about what I'm doing than what I, what I know, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't know that was a deceptive cadence, but it's cool <laughs> that you called it that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we got to talking a few years later. Um, Ashley, my wife and I were in Toronto. His band was coming through. We met up, before the concert, what do you do with a doom metal god? Before a concert, we went for gelato. <laughs> of course. Um, and then an hour later, he's just tearing it up. And by this time, Yav had become really famous. I mean, I read about them in the New York Times. They're already doing okay. But this was with their album that was doing so well. And Rolling Stone had named them best metal act of 2014 or 16 or whatever it was. And um, this time, it was a couple thousand people. Mm-hmm. really going nuts for Mike. And, but we had talked about, you know, we should do something. Then a year later, the the Pulitzer recognition, recognition happened for me and my piano piece mm-hmm. uh, with the nomination and everything. And, you know, he sent me a note, said, this is really cool. So now I guess we can work together. <laughs> he was just waiting for the Pulitzer nomination before. Well, you know, the, you got to cash in these things when you can. Yeah, yeah. You got to cash in on something cool. 
That's right. I'm thinking, yeah, all right. If the world is okay with my writing a one-hour piano piece. They're probably all right with my writing a one-hour guitar piece. And who cares what the world thinks anyway? <laughs> what can we do? And so we yeah. talked about this, and we, you know, the conversation was make something that sounds like you, and but also sounds like me. You know, he said this is your piece, but I told him I, I want it to be definitely you playing your guitar through your speakers, you know, uh, this, this gourmet sound that the doom metal guys go for with their vintage amplifiers. And mm-hmm. They're all totally into gear and vintage stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we said, wouldn't that be cool? And, you know, we thought, is there going to be an audience for this? We were thinking, well, the metal people are very open-minded and interested in all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the real concern, actually, I, I did an interview a few days ago with a German metal online magazine thing. The guy said, the metal community is going to love this recording. What's your community going to think? I was uh, thinking, it's a, weird, huh. it's, a, it's a weird thing to think of the metal community as more progressive than the new music community sometimes in terms of like what's, what's acceptable and what's, what's boundary breaking and what is just, yeah. you know, not in the club anymore. And certainly, if you say the new music community, that's one thing. But if we just say the music community in general, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we go back to those symphony orchestras we were talking about earlier. Which audience is more open-minded? I, you know, yeah. I think it's clear. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, we put this thing together, and you know, you mentioned the pandemic earlier, which has mm-hmm. been horrifying for everybody, and mm-hmm. you know, at the very least inconvenient, but for a lot of people, it's been downright devastating. So. Mm-hmm not wanting to say that it was a good thing that it happened, but Mike and I were able to work on this project together. I had finished it um, at the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. So I delivered him the score for Christmas and uh, he couldn't tour mm-hmm. with his band. So he was home. So he took guitar lessons for a year and a half, uh, once a week with somebody. Uh, Mike, Mike knows the basics of reading music, but that's not what he does. Was, you know, he writes his own music and plays it. There's no writing down. There's no reading a score. Right. So um, he needed some help. And admirably, he took lessons. So in October <clears throat> of last year, we recorded this thing. And I, I really don't know that he would have been able to devote a year and a half of his life to learning it if he had been living as a rock star through all that time. Is he going to he should open his shows, Yob shows with your piece. That would be cool. You can, you can suggest that. <laughs> I'll, message I'll suggest that. Well, that's, I mean, <laughs> but um, we wanted to do this, the, the rock way, which is release the album first, mm-hmm. then figure out the live performances. Well, it's, I mean, I, I, I appreciate you sort of saying like, you know, no one's glad the pandemic happened, but there was something that I feel fortunate to have been able to contemplate is what what are the things that were do, that what are the decisions we made during the pandemic that you, we're probably never going to get to make in that exact way ever again like the idea that everybody in the world for at least at least a couple months mm-hmm. had to wonder what else they were going to do yeah just that being forced to sort of re-crack open that old paint of can or old can of paint, mm-hmm. there were many times where I was just like, "Man, 
something awesome is going to come from this, and I just don't know what. Something is going to come out of this that would not. Where are we going to be? Like, what is what is the thing? What are the unintended consequences of this yeah. time? And I'm starting to see a little bit in my life in various ways. Um, I think the pandemic for me cracked open the podcast for me. Honestly, I had done like 70 episodes prior to the pandemic over the course of like four years. I'm now like you're my 242nd. Wow. Like, and a lot of that came from the pandemic and like just being forced to be like, I had nothing else to do. Like I couldn't, mm-hmm. so it was done, you know? And so like the idea that this, this collaboration with a doom metal guitarist is like, yeah, we needed the pandemic. You needed the pandemic yeah. for that to happen. And so I think, um, I, I just want to put a pin in that. I think for younger composers too, folks who aren't as mature as you are, James, to sort of see the forest for the trees as a, not even just in terms of how the world's doing, but like your own personal self-esteem and the way you feel like you are like most people, young James maybe would not have even just thought they could ever just even Facebook message the guy from Yob. Right. Like imagine if you just like, we talked about all of our life choices. Like let's just say you didn't make that one, that tiny in concept, like you just had enough fear. And you just decided not to email. You kept going to shows. You kept right. hoping to see him and say hello, right. but you just right. didn't message him. Right. Like imagine all of the shit that would not have happened in your life if you had just not emailed that person. So like I'm, I'm, I'm constantly poking at this right now because for young composers, the young, the little James Romigs who are out there running around trying to figure it out what it is they they should be doing every day. I don't know. Maybe maybe message the guy on Facebook as a start. <laughs> Well, you know, maybe start there and be okay yeah. with that. If you can't do that, the other shit isn't going to come, you know? And we have to acknowledge that, you know, we're, we're in a position where we can say that right now. Um, How so? Well, we're, we're in a fortunate spot where you can say the pandemic is awful, but I know something is going to come out of it. That's okay. But that's based on your track record of making, making the best out of whatever happens with those decisions. Sometimes I wonder if, mm-hmm. if it's making good decisions or if it's just making a decision and then doing the best you can with it, looking back on it and saying, I'm glad I made that decision. Does I that make sense? Absolutely. And I definitely think it's the latter. I mean, yeah. I think life has very little to do with making good decisions and well, I mean, sorry, I, I know what you mean. I completely believe that. But like, but most, mo- I mean, my dad used to say life is ni- uh, 10% of what happens and 90% of how you react to it. Yeah. And I always felt like that was like, dad, that's such a stupid thing to say. But like, yeah, I don't know. The older I get, the more I, it's like, yes. Yeah. Y- your perception of Yob being this band that is doing a thing that whatever, like, that's just your perception. Yeah. You and you deciding maybe in that moment not to email them was based on ten percent of the data, rather right. than the, the other right. ninety. And and right. you just decided to make the other decision. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I wouldn't say that was a good decision, because right. you might have made the other decision and ran into somebody else. You know, but like what you did with that decision is the is the, like you you autopsied that decision. You responded yeah. back to him, yeah. like he, like. Yeah. Um, and then you, then you carried on the conversation. You had a relationship. Then you, then you got the balls up to be like, what if I wrote you a piece? Mm-hmm. Like you didn't start there. I'm guessing, right. you know, right. like, right. but again, this goes back to 
why some things in your life, why you don't do things so fast sometimes. Maybe don't do things super quick. Maybe take the slow drip yeah. over time because that will yield the results um, the, the results that we as young folks, I think, are constantly striving or, striving or being told yeah. to do. Like you don't wake up with a teaching job. Right. <laughs> it's a slow drip over your whole life before finally one person quits and then 900 people apply for it. And because of all the relationships, yes, privilege, yes, all of the things. But the people who get those jobs or get in wind pullets, there's all these are usually, usually the people who send the email. Yeah, absolutely. Or reach out or whatever. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, that data point is there <laughs> too. And we forget about that. One thing I've been thinking about, and I'd like to know your thoughts on this too, is with the um, with the piano piece of mine, that was a that was a leap to write an hour long piano piece. I hadn't done that before, and that was something that my wife and I decided one evening. You know, we got to do something out of the ordinary, something for us. Got to make this. We we recorded it ourselves. Also, we wanted to learn how to do that, and mm-hmm. you know, at the very least, we're going to have something to put on with a good pair of headphones, take an afternoon nap and listen to it. And that would be success. We'll see you know, what happens from there. But one thing that I'm tempted to say to my students or to people who are interested <clears throat> would be that things don't work as incrementally as I thought they might have when we were starting out. Like you don't do a part-time percussion quartet and play a few weddings or something. I realize weddings don't want percussion quartets, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, There's not really an intermediate step between being a graduate student and being so percussion. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you dove in the whole way. We're going to be a full-time quartet. There aren't steps in between. So like there's not, uh, there's not a five minute, doom metal guitar solo with a lesser known artist you know there's there's not doing anything and then there's working with a rock god you know what i mean yeah so but we can't tell everybody just bite off more than you can chew and it's going to be great right well, so I, I, mean, don't, I don't know what what we're supposed to say to our students oh yeah, yeah i mean i Man, I don't either. I mean, I think other we're, we're than, sounding like we're really smart about this stuff, and we know what we're talking about. Well, I um, think I I know enough to say what worked for me, and yeah. I think you know enough to say what worked for you. And in my experience, it is there's never there's not a day where the switch is all of a sudden just on, and now your phone is ringing, and you've got all these things. There's not a day where all of a sudden you never have to do the gigs you don't want to do, right? There's not. There's never a moment where you just get to play all the rep you want to play. Do you think So chooses all of our rep all the time? Sometimes, right? But when you're being hired by a concert hall, you know we don't play music by people we don't like. Mm-hmm. But we don't. The perception that we just get to program everything the way we want to. Pro- it's not true. That's there's right. you know you have to. Maybe Kronos is at that point in their life, but I would even bet now there's still moments where mm-hmm. somebody calls Kronos and says, we'd really like you to play this piece on this show mm-hmm. for our audience. And they say no or yes. Like, yeah. And the, and the agreement isn't come and do whatever you want to do. Like right. I would say that portfolio has that investment portfolio for them. And for so is, 
is a, is adjusting over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a good direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. Because but I could imagine a situation where, you know, if you play this piece, it gets you this opportunity for mm-hmm. performance. Or we do this piece, we don't like it now, but we're hoping to invest in the future. Mm-hmm. To the point where you, uh, where everything you're doing is just based on uh, this desire to sustain. Mm. We keep going, and then you lose sight of why you were doing it in the first place. I could imagine that happening with a group. I, I'm not suggesting that would no, and, and, you, but I could I could imagine that happening with a group that I would be in. Say, it can it's a it's a pitfall, and I and I think the the one constant for us is that we have the four of us have individually we all have veto right over something, and it's mm-hmm. a lev- it's a nuclear option. We very rarely ever pull, mm-hmm. but the four of us need to really want to do the thing we're doing or really like, or be invested have some sort of investment in the composer, in the project, in something because we're going to spend our lives away from our families doing this. Yeah. So why, I, if, if the only calculation was which, which pieces are going to get us the most pay so we can be sustainable. Okay. Maybe we're sustainable, but maybe we're fighting all the time because we're out playing rep. We don't want to play. Yeah. And I'm away from my wife and she's threatening divorce and all this other stuff. And I'm out just trying to be sustainable. Why the fuck would I do that? You know? Um, so as a, as a teacher, I think I'm constantly trying to tell my students now, and maybe I'll change this over time, but like, if you don't like it and you don't believe in it, that is literally the first thing every audience is going to perceive. Yeah. Minute one. Like you can tell when you walk into a Subway sandwich shop, whether or not the people in that room care about making Subway sandwiches. And you know, when you walk into a Subway where somebody's in there and is a badass, you can tell. And they're just selling you Subway fucking sandwiches. And you can tell when somebody's like, you know what? Maybe I don't love Subway, but I'm a bad motherfucker making sandwiches. (laughs) Like that energy is something that if you don't have that whenever you're playing your senior recital or you or you're working with or you're writing a piece for some uh, another ensemble yeah you're not going to be able to sell it you're right. not going to be able to, you will not you will not convince carnegie hall to let you play on their stage if your calculation is only to sustain yourself right. and not to do something you believe in yeah that is true yeah or maybe they'll let you on once right. but the minute that minute it's perceptible that you right. are in it for something other than what you love deeply yeah, you gotta go. Yeah, you know, that's and something that nobody's got time for. That. I've said to students before: you you couldn't sell out if you wanted to. But then again, it's like, all right, fine. You then then you got some. Then there is going to be the student who's like, you know, I have dedicated my th- myself to improvising on dry ice with large sheets of metal. Then you also got to say, well, there are consequences to your choices too, <laughs> <laughs> like. Unfortunately, we do live in a market economy that is based on capitalism. And right. the sad truth is, is that dry ice improv does not generate stuff that people need as much as even Steve Reich's music. Like, I don't even think people need Steve Reich's music to get through their day. But there's enough of a cultural sort of uh, momentum behind his music that capitalism can sort of glom itself onto that. Enough where a percussion group could sustain itself by playing Steve's music. If we didn't like Steve's music, we would not be making a no matter even if even if our skill level on Steve's music never changed, right. we all of a sudden just didn't believe in it. 
I guarantee you Carnegie's not going to have us come play because it will be palpable that we don't give a shit about this. And so with my students, it's like, yeah, okay, cool. You're playing, you're playing the first Goldenberg etude. Do you care about it? Do you care about playing, making a good, like care about that? Show me that you, or at least show me, pretend to care about it. Practice pretending, you know, practice caring about something and, and get good at that. So that whenever you get the thing in your hands that you love and that is yours, it's not your first time in the end zone. You know what I mean? Like, and that sort of like students getting the end zone and doing the dance before they've even caught a football is like, what are you, what are you? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. we're going to run running plays for the, for the entire first four years of your life. You are just running the ball right up the middle. Like yeah. you have to learn how to take a hit that I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. But I don't know if that's healthy advice, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's a good place to end, James. I don't know. <laughs> well, man, this unhelpful I, advice from from Josh and James. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Again, like I don't know if it's unhelpful advice. If 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 it is helpful at all for anybody to just hear the two of us talk about even just to de- demystify some aspect of either performing or composing or the process around this, or the idea that you might go see a band play and that that person on stage is just a person who checks their Facebook messages like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you just you never know. know in this particular case, um, I made some assumptions about who this guy was. And once we got to chatting, we found that we had a lot in common mm-hmm. um, musically about what's important musically, but also some of those really important things about you know, how to interact with the other humans, mm-hmm. how we want to treat people, um, so it's it's been a, a really joyous collaboration. It's um, it's been very positive in a lot of ways. And you know the thing could fall flat. It's going to come out in a few weeks. Maybe people will listen to it. Maybe they won't. Maybe people will write about it. Maybe they won't. But yeah. I can listen to it on my headphones, and I've got a buddy who I'm texting with, and you know, well, let's, it's, it's a success. Can I ask a favor of you before we wrap up? Whenever this, whenever it comes out, yeah. and you get the premiere under your belt, and you and you both feel good about it, I would love to have you both on the podcast. Um, if for no other reason, I need to to broaden my doom metal base of fans for the podcast. Um, I would, <laughs> but it, I think for me, it would be. I would really love to be a fly on the wall hearing the two of you talk because right now I'm I'm hearing your side of the story, which yeah. I don't presume that I wouldn't presume you're lying or making any of it up. Okay. But but the idea on his side of the coin, he may have been like, wait a minute, that's what you thought. Uh-huh. <laughs> like yeah. to me, that's a really sort of interesting sort of. Uh, uh, not to un- to tease out if, if you guys would be up for it sometime. I I won't volunteer him for anything, but yeah. I suspect that he'd be he'd be delighted to, to chat with you. With well, us. I'll take I'll take my own medicine. I will message him on Facebook as well. But maybe if you could have fifty one percent responsibility in helping me make that happen, I think of course. that would be of that course. would be really nice. Yeah. Well, James, I really appreciate your time, and I, I appreciate you making the time while you're on the road. I know you're in a hotel room right now. Um, praying that the Wi-Fi stays strong and it held strong the whole time. So, yeah, it seems to be good. Um, My uh, pleasure. In, uh, just to, to wrap up, where can folks find out about, if they want to learn more about you and your music and, and this new guitar solo, where can folks go to sort of quickly find out about you and your work? My website, jamesromig.com. Uh, you can find me there. You can find me on Wikipedia. Send me a note on Facebook. 
<laughs> you will. Whatever. You will. By contractually obligated, you will respond. Because you know, I will. So, I, and I always <laughs> tell students this when I do composition seminars and things. If you send me your music and ask me to listen to it, I actually will listen to it. So please don't send me a two-hour string quartet unless it's good. <laughs> On that note, James, I will will wrap up. Stay healthy and safe, and I really appreciate your time, and I hope that we can cross paths and have a beer in person soon. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, James. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, My good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. MangoChowClothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.